Well, well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here, and we're going to begin today a series on the book of Philippians, and we'll be in Philippians for the rest of the spring and probably into the summer, and for the astute among you, you've probably noticed that we are not starting in in Philippians today. We are actually going to be in Acts chapter 16. Today's passage is found for you on page 10 and 11 in your order of service. You're welcome to turn to Acts 16 in your own Bibles or your smartphone apps if you want to do that, or right there in front of you should be a dark blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And the passage today is found on page 870 in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We would love for you to have that. Uh, But before we go to God's Word together, let's first go together in prayer. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in speech, that we might know you, that we might know exactly what you want us to know about you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would once again be true to your promise, that you would send your spirit even now, open your word up to us, that we might see the beauty of your holiness, the amazing love that you have for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and our great need for him. Pray that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in Acts 16 this morning because this is the founding, or what we call the planting of the church in Philippi. So before we get to the book to this church, we thought let's, let's look at how this church began in this Greek city. And it's, it's important for us because Sycamore, in case you don't know this, most of you do, Sycamore is a church planting church. We have an aura, if I'm allowed to use that word in church, of church planting all around us. We're sending Marty off to church plant in Amelia in a couple months. We sent Leonard Liu to plant Evergreen out in Powhatan. We sent Phil Castile right, to go to Wiesbaden, Germany. We sent Andrew Conrad down to Woodlake area to plant Spring Run. Y'all got me from church planting in, in Boston, ma. So to come here where people actually know how to talk. And today we're going to look at Paul planting his church, or this church now in Philippi. So if you're a New Testament fan, or if you've been around for a while, this is what we call Paul's second missionary journey. He's traveling around to some churches he's already planted, going into new areas, and he wants at this point in his journey in Acts, at the beginning of Acts 16, he wants to go north into modern-day Turkey, but he feels this deep conviction that he shouldn't do it. In fact, it even says in the beginning of the chapter that the Spirit of Jesus prohibited him from doing it. This is strong conviction. So instead of going north, he heads west west into modern day Greece, and he ends up in the city of Philippi, which was a very metropolitan, diverse city of the Roman Empire. Like most of the empire, it was very religiously robust. There were small G gods everywhere, and monotheism, the belief in just one god only, was very weird, very seditious in many ways, and suspicious. Not normal. And so Paul is bringing not just true religion, but he is bringing something that's really strange to these people. And today we're going to see that through Paul, God brings into his family a wealthy merchant woman, an enslaved girl, a Roman career man, and several others. And it's a long narrative, so what we're going to do today, instead of reading this whole thing in one chunk, we're going to read a section and kind of go over together and read another section. So let's start off together looking at verses 1 through 15. Again, it's found for you on page 10 there in your order of worship. Get these, because I am of that age. All right. 
So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. All right, so it begins, we learn a little bit about the city of Philippi. First of all, we're told it's a Roman colony. That means it has special status. It's not just a foreign city in the empire outside of Italy. It's actually as if it's a little Rome, a little bit of Italy outside of Italy. The, the laws were more favorable to Romans. The taxation rate was better than it was to more foreign areas. And what's really important, because it was a colony, Rome owned it. And so it was a very cheap way to pension off uh, uh, former military people. So when you would retire from the legions as an officer, you would get a pension and you would get land and colonies were the best places to do it because land was very free because they just took it. So Philippi, we know from historical records, had a tremendously large ex or former military population. And we're told that Paul, if, if you know the book of Acts, he typically goes to the synagogues and he starts talking to Jewish people about their Messiah. And we're told here that he doesn't go to a synagogue. Instead, he goes to a technical term, says a place of prayer. What that means is this, is that in, according to Jewish law at the time, it took 10 Jewish men to found a synagogue. And so in this large metropolitan city, there's not even 10 Jewish men who can start a synagogue, so they have to instead go to a place of prayer, which was usually by water because the Jewish synagogue service contains several kinds of ceremonial washings, so they like to be near water. So Paul knows there's no synagogue. There's not even 10 faithful Jewish men here. Let's go down to the river, and let's see if there's a place of prayer. And we get there, and we see that there's all these, non, these, all these women there at the place of prayer. Presumably, if they're Jewish women, you know, if their husbands would join them, maybe they could actually start a synagogue. But more likely what's going on is these are actually non-Jewish women who somehow have had a connection and encounter with the God of the Old Testament. And so they are there like Lydia, and they're called worshipers. Again, that's a technical term. It's not just a description. It means that this person has officially aligned themselves with the God of the Old Testament, even though they're not a Jewish person. And so they're gathered together. And I love the fact that Luke goes out of his way to report that this is mainly, if not entirely, women. We know that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and also wrote the book of Acts, he's writing to a specific Roman official named Theophilus, and he's trying to make the case for the positive civic good of Christianity. And so the fact that the Jewish people at that time did not treat women that well, the Roman Empire as a whole treated women a little better, but not anything near like what we would expect today. The fact that he does this is really interesting because showing how Paul had to start this church primarily with women is actually bad PR if you're trying to make the case that this is a civic good. This is one of those things you see in there that if he's making this up, this is one of those things you don't put in here. This is bad. 
And, and, or if you're writing an actual historical account of things that happened and you feel like you should tell the truth, then he's got to put it in there even though it's not the best way you would want to put it. So it's these women only who were there. So one of them is Lydia. She's presented as a middle-class merchant. Purple was very expensive. And so we know that she has a, is a woman of means. And at the end, she even has this big enough house to host them all. And so Paul brings in this, or God brings in this worshiper to come and hear Paul. It says the Lord opens her heart when she hears Paul testify. We assume she confesses faith in Jesus Christ as Lord because right after that, it says she's baptized her and her whole household. Now, Western autonomous individualism wouldn't be invented for another 1,500 years, so no one had a problem with this household baptism at the time. And so she says, hey, if you really think I'm a Christian, let me host y'all at my house. All right, let's pick up from there and see what happens next in verses 16 through 24. <clears throat> so as we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing so for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, so it starts out this slave girl is following Paul and kind of getting on his nerves. Now, slavery was everywhere in the ancient world. And the main difference between then and what most of us are familiar with in slavery is that anybody of any race or any social class could become a slave if their life circumstances changed. They didn't discriminate. Anybody could become a slave. Anybody could own anybody else if the economic circumstances allowed it. And so this enslaved girl who was oppressed was also possessed by this spirit of divination, the text tells us. So she had a demon, basically, that could tell her accurate information about the future occasionally, and her owners used this to make themselves a fortune. And so week after week on the Sabbath, as you notice how quickly Luke says that, we, we miss. This is a long time. It's not a few days. He's going down on the Sabbath. So every week she's there waiting for them. So after several weeks of this, she follows Paul around and she says, these men are servants of the Most High God. If you were here on Christmas Day when we were in Luke 8, you remember demons tend to have really good theology like this one does here. But there's a problem as well. The religious ears of Philippi hear that phrase from her and they would assume she's talking about Zeus. That's weird for us. I know for them, Zeus was considered the most high God. And so these people would hear Paul proclaiming the gospel. They would hear this girl saying that. And in their mind, they would say, oh, there's this new God named Jesus to add to our pantheon. And Paul will not have that. 
He is annoyed, the text tells us, and it means exactly what you think it does. It means annoyed. And so I love this. With no incantations, he doesn't take out chalk and draw a circle and put some weird powder on the ground. He doesn't get some water and like the power of Christ compels you. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, in the name of Jesus, come out. Which is exactly what Jesus does in Luke 8 to the legion guy full of demons as well. And this oppressed girl is immediately freed. Now it's commonly assumed she became part of the Philippians church plant. Good for her. But her owners are not happy about this. They see a loss of profit. And as we all know, if you hit somebody in their wallet, they hit back hard, usually. And so they drag Paul and Silas down to the town square, to the sheriff. And they can't say, he done prayed the prophet out of our slave. Can't do that. So they appeal to anti-Semitism and xenophobia instead. Look with me at verse 20 and 21. It says, these men are Jews. And they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And then this Roman colony completely ignores Roman law. With no hearing, with no trial, they publicly strip Paul and Silas, beat them, and throw them into prison. They must have believed something was special about them because of the exorcism, perhaps, because the jailer is told to take extra precautions to keep them securely, keep them really safe, not just normally safe, but really safe. And so they end up at the end of the day beaten, naked, wounded, in jail with their feet in stocks. Or just another day church planting, basically. <laughs> so let's see what happens next. Look at me at verse 25. <clears throat> About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. For we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. All right, so in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this, what's got to be discouraging, right? They're praying and they're singing hymns. They're not whining, complaining, texting. Either, they're either crazy or they've actually had an encounter with something very real in their life. And the other prisoners are listening to them do this when suddenly the earth shakes. But, oddly enough, the walls don't crumble, the ceiling doesn't cave in. Instead, their handcuffs fall off and all the doors open up. In other words, it's a miracle. Luke is either making this up, you realize, right? He's either, he's either lying or it happened. 
You can't, well, I respect the scriptures. And I, I, I like the Bible, but yeah, this miracle stuff. Uh-uh. There's nothing to respect here if he's making this up, right? Okay, it either happened or it didn't. The text presents it as something supernatural has happened. The jailer wakes up. The jailer assumes they've all escaped. And instead of facing a very public shaming and execution for dereliction of duty, he decides to end himself right then and there. Paul cries out, letting him know, no, we're all still here. So apparently enough time has passed that they could have escaped. The text doesn't tell us why the prisoners stayed, perhaps because they heard Paul and Silas worshiping and knew something amazing was going on, or maybe it was just part of the miracle that the Lord took their motivation to leave. We don't know. The text doesn't say, but for some reason they're still there. They shouldn't have been. See, at this point, the jailer's world is undone. His life was forfeit. And then Paul calls out, and all of a sudden he realizes, no, it's not. And so trembling with fear, this most likely retired higher military official comes down and falls down before two men who had so little riots that they were stripped and beaten and imprisoned without a trial. He falls down before them and says, what must I do to be rescued, to be saved? It's a vague term. He's not asking for salvation from his sins. He's just, something big has just happened. What do I have to do to not be hurt? They take advantage and they answer with the gospel. Look with me at verse 31. To this man who has no Old Testament background, they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Again, with no Old Testament background, he would have heard the word Lord as a political term, not a spiritual term as you and I tend to hear it. He would have heard Lord as give your allegiance to, submit your life to, make him your master. He is now in charge of you. That's how he would have heard this. Swear allegiance to Jesus alone. And then in verse 32, they back that up by sharing the gospel with him. He cares for their wounds from the earlier beating that he did not care for before. And then not only was he baptized immediately, but again we see so too all of his family. Now, don't think, wait, did they go home first? Don't think of like a um, typical county jail like you're probably thinking of. Think instead of, of a very large house with a big courtyard in the middle and probably... 25% to a third of this house was the jail, and the rest of it was the residence for his family. It's a really cushy job for a retired military official. So he's as a city jailer. So his family is like right there. So he goes and gets his family, and they're all baptized. So at Sycamore, we're part of the Presbyterian Church, and we believe in infant baptism. And one of the supports that we use for infant baptism is these various mini household baptisms in the book of Acts. It's, it's, it's one of the things, not the only thing, but to be fair, household baptisms do not prove infant baptism. But what they do show is this. The Bible has no problem with the faith of the head of a family being what qualifies the rest of the family to be baptized as well, even when they aren't the ones believing. And that is in the text. Look with me at verse 34. What's it say? It says, He rejoiced along with his entire family that he had believed in God. Who believed? He, not they. And yet they were baptized. Now I know, I, I, I live here too. My, my, my Western autonomous individualism just seethes at that. 
I know, I get it. And I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I'm not here to, like, to wail on people who don't believe in infant baptism, but I just want to ask one question before moving on. Is your objection to infant baptism based in Scripture, or is it actually based in culture? And I'll leave that for you to decide. Let's move on. <laughs> Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So when they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. All right, so the jailer, who's now one of them, comes in the next day. He's like, hey, good news, y'all. It's over. You're free. Praise the Lord. You can go. In peace is a technical term. It means there's no follow-up. There's no court case. There's no fine. They're done with you. You can go. And Paul says, no, no, it ain't over. I want you to, again, hear the emotion in Paul's words. Put yourself in Paul's place as we look again at verse 37. And hear what he says. He says, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. And the text tells us the authorities are afraid. Why are they afraid? Well, one of the ways that Rome kept the Pax Romana, if you remember from your history classes, the great Roman peace, this period of time that was unheard of pretty much until the 20th century when it was relatively safe inside of a general area. There was not a general sense of lawlessness. You, the crime was low. You could travel back and forth and not have to worry about bandits and all this stuff. One of the reasons that that happened was because Rome made it a policy and then they executed this policy. If even one Roman citizen was mistreated, the subject of any kind of crime or anything in an area, they would send the Roman legions in and punish everybody. And so the people realized real quick, we better keep the criminals at bay. And so they would self-police and they would make it super safe for Roman citizens. Roman citizens could walk out with $50 bills hanging out of their togas in the roughest neighborhoods. People were like, I don't want to see nothing. And a colony like Philippi could totally lose all of its privileges for what they've done to Paul and Silas. It was a really big deal. These officials are so afraid at this point. Now, have you asked the question to yourself yet? It's pretty obvious of a question, right? Paul, why didn't you play that card back in verse 22? Because that's when you and I would have done it, right? I mean, as soon as that magistrate made a move towards me, I'd be like, look here, Barney, I'm a Roman citizen. You want to climb this tree? Because my rights and my dignity are absolutely what's most important. Apparently not so for Paul and Silas. 
Remember earlier in this chapter, Paul wanted to go north and God convicted him so strongly that, that the way Luke describes it is we were prohibited from going north. Instead, we convicted, we went west and we ended up in Philippi because the Lord wanted him there. So too, I believe that the Lord had his sights on this jailer and so Paul and Silas had to be in jail. And so I believe they were convicted to stay silent and not assert their rights. And as I was thinking about that and praying through that, I have to tell you that the way that I reacted inside to what I, with all my expert medical knowledge, considered was an unscientific, stupid, illogical, unnecessary, fear-based mask mandate, all of that foolishness came back to my mind immediately. That's just me. I'm not saying y'all. Because I'm curious, is this even an option for American Christians to say, I will voluntarily not assert my rights and I will let myself take a punishment that I could immediately get out of? Is that even on the table for us as an option? That for the potential progress of the gospel, we would be willing to embrace voluntarily suffering even when we don't have to. When all we had to do was assert our rights and we could avoid it. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There are plenty of examples where both Paul and Jesus absolutely stop something and assert their rights. I'm not saying never. But right here, Paul clearly refuses to do so. He voluntarily takes a public shaming, a public beating, and an arrest. When you and I know we would have played the citizenship card way before that, wouldn't we? Let's not fool ourselves. But then, now that it's over, now he asserts his rights? What's going on? I mean, is he angry? He's just wanting to stick it to the man? The public exoneration of Paul and Silas. Remember, it was an entire crowd. It was an entire mob demanding this. And now, the same public square, this public exoneration of Paul and Silas is a public exoneration of their teaching. It's a public exoneration of all their associates. This public apology serves the fledgling church. It is now officially, publicly safe in Philippi to preach Jesus and be one of his followers. All because Paul and Silas were willing to set aside their rights. You know, in a time such as ours, in a time of such great cultural upheaval, where the concerns for rights is so forefront, where every group, subgroup, and behavior choice must be empowered and have their rights established and enforced. I wonder, could the key to seeing Christianity thrive in our country be the unheard of precedent of millions of Christians laying aside their rights and instead living out the reality of being a servant, a slave of Jesus. We'll end on that question by just noticing real quick how Jesus rearranged Paul's loves and how he can rearrange our loves too. Paul now gave up his rights, and shared in Jesus' sufferings. He's, he'll go on to tell us about in Philippians. He no longer counted his life as his own. 
he'll go on to tell us. He no longer considered his life of supreme importance. Instead, he realized that as a Christian, he was not his own, but had been purchased at a price. And so therefore, he glorified God in his body. See, Paul realized that Christianity is about spirit and body. That Jesus saves us by paying the price for our sins with his body. His bodily death pays the price that we deserve, that we owed. And so when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as the resurrected Lord, it's not merely a spiritual thing. It's a changing of allegiance. Because Jesus as Lord is a political term as much as it is a spiritual term. Jesus redeems us. Another term that we've spiritualized is actually a very plain economic term. That means I've given money and now I own it. Jesus purchases us. He owns us. And so we call him Master and Lord. And there's nothing he can't ask of us. See, that humbles us, doesn't it, when we realize that? It empowers us to give up our rights. But then it also lifts us up because we see that Jesus died voluntarily for us out of love. He did not assert his rights as the Son of God who could have avoided punishment, who could have called down a legion to defeat Pontius Pilate and avoid a crucifixion. He didn't do any of that. Instead, he submitted voluntarily to suffering and death for us. See, such love overwhelms us. It overwhelms our love of self, and it empowers us to give ourselves for him. That's the gospel. And those are the themes that we're going to see over and over again in the book of Philippians. Because that's Christianity. You believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, I come before you and I confess that this is hard. I am in love with my rights and my privileges. And I don't want to give them up. But Lord, I want to want to give them up. So would you overwhelm me with the love that Jesus has for me? And I pray the same for everybody here, Lord. Would you help us to see the beauty of Jesus in his gospel? That though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. So that, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Lord, I pray for those of us here today who know you, who've confessed faith in Jesus, who are united to your son, who get to call you Father, and it actually means something. I pray that you would once again give us deep repentance for where we are so concerned about exalting ourselves and establishing our rights. Would you help us again, Lord, to lay down our lives for our Savior as he laid down his life for us, that we would walk as servants of Jesus instead of having him as our mascot. And Lord, I pray for those here who don't know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to him. Even now, Father, would you call people from death to life, 
that they might confess faith and believe. I pray that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.